that you will leave here with a clearer view of the gracious character of our God and of the power, the power that he has to raise the dead to new life. This is a spectacular and a precious passage that we have before us tonight. How is that going to work? How are we going to do this? Well, in our text this evening, we're going to observe the interactions between several different characters. And most of the action happens, as you'll have noticed as we read this just a few minutes ago, in one room. One room. This is a drama or a play that takes place in a one-room set. Now, maybe some of you like to go to musicals here in London. You've got all kinds of shows that are available. My wife and some of you I know love to go to musicals. That's not my favorite thing in the world to do, but I realize that for some people, sitting there and seeing a magnificent set and lots of set changes and singing and dancing, and twer- that, that, that's an enjoyable thing for you. For me, I'm, I'm less of a lay Miz phantom kind of guy and more of a uh, death of a salesman. What does that tell me? Well, that's what, that's, that's me. I like, I like a one room simple drama on the stage where all the action is focused not on the bells and the whistles and the dancing and the movement, but on the development of characters and the intensity, the poignancy of the action right there on the stage in front of me. And that's what we have here in the text this evening. This one room where all of the action unfolds. Before we reflect together on what happens in this room, can I make sure that you've got the text in front of you, please? Could you open up once again to Second Kings chapter 4? That's page 309 if you're using the church Bible. If you've got it on your phone. Second Kings chapter 4. And we're looking at this section that begins in verse 8. And that's what we have in front of us this evening. God's word invites us into into a beautiful, precious room this evening. Did you notice the text begins and ends in the same room? It bookends this little story about the Shunammite and her son. And when we enter this room beginning and we look around, it's a very ordinary kind of room. But what happens in this room is extraordinary. And God wants to get our attention this evening as we look at it together. By the time we leave the room in this text, we will be amazed by the power of God. And I hope, I hope, we'll also be encouraged to trust in the promises of God even more. So, Can I ask you this evening to come into this room with me together? Let's have a look. And we're going to jump right into verse 10. You see in there in verse verse 10? Let's make a small room, the woman says to her husband, with walls. And put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. It's a small room built on the roof of an ordinary house in modern-day the the north of modern-day Israel, this little room. It's got very little furniture in the room. A bed, a little desk or table, a little lamp in the corner, a chair. It's a room, verse 8 tells us, built by this wealthy Shunammite woman. We don't know much about her. We know she lives in the north of England. North of England, sorry. The north of Israel. 
and that there with her husband she has the means to build this little this little hut on the roof of their house. And why does she do it? She does it because Elisha keeps passing through on his travels up and down the land of Israel. And she says, let's build him a room. She's built it for the prophet who in verse 9 she refers to as the holy man of God. And she's built it, as she says in verse 10, so that whenever Elisha comes to us, he can go in there. So verses 8 to 10 set the stage for us. It's, it's a simple stage, a simple set, one room. How many characters are there on the stage for this little mini-drama? Well, there are really only four that we, that we need to pay attention to, aren't there? There's the Shunammite woman. There's Elisha, the prophet. There's Elisha's servant, a man called Gehazi. And then there's the little boy that's born to this woman. Four characters, one room, and the interaction among them. The room begins from verse 11 onward as a room of promise. Do you see that? Have a look from with me from verse 11. It's a room of promise and a room of new life. One day, Elisha came there, verse 11 says, and he turned into the chamber and he rested there. During his stay, what does Elisha do? He asks Gehazi, what can, what can we do? Tell me something nice we can do for this woman. She's been so kind to us. How can we repay her? So they call the woman. She comes and Elisha asks her, how can we, can, can I put in a good word to the politicians for you? What about the, the commander of the army? Do you need some protection out here in the, in the more rural area? And the woman says, no, I'm content to dwell among my people. And she leaves. And Elisha says to Gehazi, so what are we going to do for her? How can we thank this woman? And Gehazi provides the information that Elisha needs, doesn't he? What does Gehazi tell him? He says, this woman has no child, and her husband is very old. And so Elisha knows what he's going to do. And Elisha calls her back in and tells her that she is going to have a child. Now, this is a familiar situation for us, isn't it? Let's reflect just for a moment. For those of you who know God's Word, who've read other parts of the Old Testament or New Testament scriptures, this is a familiar situation, isn't it? Where you've got a woman with her husband, and they've not been able to have a child. And then there's a promise about this time next year. We've heard those words before. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but you might remember that these are the same words that we heard in Genesis chapter 17 and 18, when God promised to Abraham and to Sarah that they were going to have a son. The same words, about this season, about this time, next year, you shall embrace a son. It's a familiar situation And by this stage, as we've been reading our way through God's Old Testament word, we should be ready for what comes next, shouldn't we? What does God do in these situations? Well, he miraculously works so that a barren woman can bear a child. And that's exactly what happens. The woman doesn't believe it at first. She says, don't lie to me. Come on, don't don't get my hopes up. Don't lie to me. But what happens? Verse 17, the woman Conceived, And she bore a son about the same time the following spring, as Elisha said to her. We have to pause just here, just here. We're going to come back to this thought, but I want to make sure that you, you understand, even at this point, 
in the text what is happening. Who is Elisha? He is God's prophet. And how do we know that someone is a prophet of God in the Old Testament? It's not just because they call themselves a prophet or someone else considers them a prophet. The true test that makes a prophet a prophet is what? If his words spoken come to pass. And this is exactly what we see in our text. Elisha's words come true. God speaks a word of promise through his prophet and God keeps his promises. Elisha is a true prophet. That's one of the things we have to notice just now. And the other thing is, God is a God who makes promises and when he makes promises, he always keeps his promises. God is a promise-making God. God is a promise-keeping God. God cannot lie. And in this case, his word has come true. So that's the first thing we see in this room of promise this evening. God working miraculously through the word of his prophet to bring new life. This baby boy for the Shunammite and her husband. But things change Quickly, don't they? From verse 18. The tone of this drama changes. And maybe the set doesn't change. Maybe, maybe it's the lighting that begins to change. Things darken as we watch what happens on this stage. This room of promise quickly becomes a room of death. From verse 18. We fast forward. The woman's baby has grown up a little bit. We don't know how old he is, but he's old enough to follow his father and the servants out into the fields. He's there in the fields with the reapers. But then as he's out in the fields one day, tragedy strikes. An ordinary kind of tragedy, perhaps, but it's tragic. And the story drives home just how tragic it is for us. In verse 19, the boy cries out to his father, Oh, my head, my head! We don't know exactly what's happening. Some commentators want us to think... He's out in the fields and he's overcome by sunstroke. That's possible. Maybe it's, maybe it's the signs of an aneurysm. Something goes wrong in the boy's brain. But whatever it is, it's serious. And the boy's father sends him in the arms of the servant back to his mother. And there with his mother, he sits on her lap until middle, midday. And at noon, verse 20 tells us, This child dies. This child, this precious child that God had promised to them, surprised them with, now the child's dead, lying dead on his mother's lap. It's tragic. It's tragic because the problem of death intrudes and it seems as though it's going to interrupt all of the wonderful things that God was doing after he made his promise. The child has died. And so we find ourselves there in verse 21 back in the room where we began, but that room of promise is now a room of silence and sorrow and grief and death where new life had miraculously been announced. Now that little boy lies still, not breathing, on the prophet's bed. And this story starkly portrays for us a problem of death. And I think we need to pause once more here and just consider for a moment together Why is death such a problem? When we come to a story like this and we we hit this part of the story where the boy dies, why do our hearts sink? Why does it why does it get us in the gut? Even though this is not someone we know personally. 
It's because death is a problem, isn't it? But the world, the world doesn't always agree. The world tries to avoid the problem of death in a variety of ways. Some people, and maybe you know some people like this, try to ignore, ignore the problem of death, ignore the prospect of death. Maybe they say, well, okay, fine, but I'm going to ignore that. Party now while I can, right? Eat, drink, and be merry while I can, while I'm young, while I've got money, while I've got health. Let me just enjoy life. I'm not even going to think about death. Not yet. They ignore death. Maybe there are others that you know that try to kind of reimagine death or reconstrue death in some way. They try to make their peace. Have you heard this? Well, death is just a natural part of life. It's just part of the cycle of life. Do you think, do you think that kind of response to this boy's mother would have been a good response? Do you think she would have received that well? Those of you who have lost loved ones, does that comfort you to think that death is a a part of life? It doesn't, does it? Because that doesn't get to the heart of the tragedy of death. Or others who think blindly, well, I don't really know, it's going to happen, but I'm sure we'll all go to a better place somehow. There's got to be, there's a heaven that will surely welcome me in. And they try to reimagine death. Well, on what basis? On what basis? Others, and maybe this is, maybe this is where you are, know that death is coming. And even the death in a story like this brings to mind an encounter that you've had with a loved one, a family member maybe, a friend who has died, maybe even recently. And maybe you're afraid. Maybe death fills you with fear and anxiety. We live in a world that's violent, in a city that's violent, don't we? We we live in a time when viruses are constantly in the news and people are dying and people are afraid of dying. Maybe that's you, that you fear death. Well, All of those attitudes to death, in one way or another, are addressed by our text this evening. Because this room, which is now still with the little, the little boy who's died, does not remain a room of death. We know why death intrudes. We know the reason, the real reason for death, don't we? Death comes because of sin. It's because of sin against a holy God that death intrudes into our lives and into the world. And death is a curse. Death is not a natural part of the life cycle. Death is not something that we can ignore and wipe away. Death is something tragic, just as this mother experiences here. And it comes because of sin. But it doesn't need to fill us with fear because we serve a God and a Savior who has conquered death. And we're going to see more of that as we go on in this story. So we began with a room of promise that has become a room of death for this little boy and his mother. But it's going to change. That room, that's not how that room will be at the end of this passage, is it? That room of death is going to become a room of resurrection life, a room of new life. And we're going to see just how that happens well, at first, there seems like there's no relief. We go back into the story, and we follow this woman. She saddles up a donkey with a servant. She urges the donkey on, and she is single-minded, isn't she, in her pursuit of Elisha. She wants to get to the man of God. She's got to get there. And she's not having anybody else, is she? Elisha sees her coming. He sends a guy out to meet her, and she says, Yep, fine, I'm, I want to see him. And she presses on to get to the man of God. And when she gets there... He can see what bitter distress she's in. And he soon realizes what's happened. 
that her son has died. So he sends Gehazi off, sends him with his staff, that, that symbol of the prophet's power. And he says, take this, take this and put it on the boy. And maybe this will work the power of God to bring him back to life. But Gehazi has no success. He runs ahead. He places the staff. But what does it tell us in verse 31? There was no sound, no sign of life. And Gehazi tells Elisha, the child has not awakened. The room of promise is still a room of death. How how will life return to this room? Well, it comes. It comes with the prophet of God. Do you see how this story unfolds? Verse 32, Elisha, God's prophet, the man of God, arrives. And where the prophet of God arrives, the power of God arrives. And it's a life-giving power. Verse 32, he sees the child. Now at this point, let's just pause to remember who Elisha is. We've dropped into this text this evening. We've not had the luxury of preaching our way right through 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And for some of you, you may not have read these stories before. If it was, it's a long time ago. So let's just refresh our memory for a moment. Who is this prophet? Who's Elisha? You might remember that Elisha, there are two names that we often confused, and sometimes even as, as preachers are preaching, we get them confused. Elisha and Elijah. Elisha is the successor, the younger successor, who follows on after Elijah, another prophet of God. And Elijah was such a wonderful prophet that among the mighty things he did was to raise a child from the dead. And if we've been following through the story of First and Second Kings, we would we would remember that. But Elijah himself has now disappeared off the pages of the story. He didn't die. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And Elisha, the younger prophet, saw him go and prayed, and his prayer was granted, and he was granted a double portion of the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of that prophet. And the Spirit of God comes upon Elisha, and now Elisha is a few chapters into his prophetic ministry. And that should also start to raise our hopes. If this, if young Elisha is going to be anything like Elijah, we can expect great things. If God has really chosen him, if he's really the man of God, then God is going to work powerfully through Elisha. And our text goes to great lengths to remind us that this is who Elisha is. Did you see it? Verse 9, the woman called him a holy man of God. Verse 22, he's the man of God. Verse 25 and 27, again, the man of God. The story doesn't want us to forget that this Elisha, who now by verse 32 steps into the room of death, is the man of God. And he brings with him the power and the word of God. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah, the older one, had raised a widow's son to new life. And now the younger Elisha is about to do something very similar. Elisha is the prophet of God. And the woman, the woman knows this. She knows it increasingly. In fact, we know she knows it because of her posture. Do you see the way that her posture changes as we follow her through this story? At the beginning of her interaction with Elisha, what was she doing? Verse 12, when she was called in, she stood before the prophet. 
Now, this wasn't a, a standing out of disrespect, but it was, it was a standing. And she, she greets the offer of help from this prophet of God almost casually, as far as we can tell from her tone. Well, that changes in her next interaction. When her son dies, she's no longer standing still. She's no longer casual, is she? She urges that donkey on its way, and she goes and she seizes. Uh, she, first of all, she seeks, verses 22 to 25. She seeks desperately and urgently the man of God. And then in verse 27, she seizes hold of the man of God and his prophet and his, and his uh, servant. Do you, do you see the change in her posture? She's going from standing to seeking urgently to seizing. And now she says, I'm sticking with you. I'm not going to let go of you. You're not sending me back without you. Gehazi's fine, but I'm going with you. I'm not letting you go. And in the story as this unfolds, I think what we have here for us is a beautiful picture of the posture, the posture of faith towards the man that God chooses, towards the man of God. How is it that this woman interacts with Elisha? She more and more desperately seeks to cling on to him because she knows that her hope is in him because he's the man that God has chosen. It's the posture of faith seeking God's help, passionately, patiently, zealously clinging to God's prophet through whom God speaks his promises and through whom he works his power. Okay, back to the room, back to the room. What does Elisha do from verse 32? He enters the room And he shuts the door. And we're back where we began, in that room. Verse 33, Elisha prays. He prayed to the Lord. And then verses 34 and 35, he does something that we don't fully understand. This is a bit strange, isn't it? He stretches himself out upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. And the commentators aren't quite sure what to do with this. But I, I think in the, in the narrative as it unfolds, it's pretty clear. At least several things are clear for us. Two things. One, Elisha is engaging in intense prayer before God. He is praying. He's praying that the Lord, by his power, would raise this child. And he stretches himself out upon the child in verse 34. This is not a very common word that's used here in verse 34. And in fact, one of the only other times that that word is used is with Elijah, the older prophet, in 1 Kings chapter 18, when he throws himself down, praying fervently on top of Mount Carmel. Same word here. So whatever is going on in, in Elisha stretching himself out over the boy, one thing we know, it involves fervent prayer, fervent intercession for this young boy that the Lord would restore him to life. And we get the image, don't we, of giving breath for breath, life for life, as he stretches himself upon the child. And then what happens? Wonderfully, almost unbelievably, verse 35 the child sneezes, seven sneezes. Now, I don't know what you do when you sneeze. I sneeze once or twice, generally, 
you, you know, people tend to sneeze in certain patterns. I'm sure you've noticed this. Uh, some of my some of my kids sneeze three or four times. My mother-in-law, by my count anyway, she may contest this, tends to sneeze seven, not seven, five or six times in a row. She's she's quite quite a sneezer. But this child, seven times sneezing. Why? Why would that detail be given to us in the text? Because this child who was not breathing, who was dead and still, is now fully alive. This, this, this is not an involuntary muscle movement of a dead child lying. This child is alive and breathing and miraculously has been returned to new life. And this room of press, which became a room of death, is now a room of new life by God's resurrection power spoken through his prophet. Well, as we close together, let's think about some of the implications here. And as we do that, I want to point out to you that this story gives us a pattern which is further unfolded in a story we have about Jesus in the New Testament. Maybe some of your minds went there. Could you keep a finger in Second Kings as you turn to the Gospel of Luke? The Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, chapter 7. Now remember, this story takes place in the north of Israel, in a region called Shunem. And the story we're about to look at, the very short story in Luke chapter 7, also takes place in the north of Israel. In fact, just miles away from where the Old Testament story took place, near a town called Nain. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Do you see, we've got the same kind of story. Yes, we're not in a room this time, we're out in the town, we're out in public, but a dead child, only son of a mother. Only this time, it's not Elijah, it's not Elisha, it's Jesus. And verse 13 continues, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about Jesus spread through the whole country of Judea and all of the surrounding country. Do you see, do you see this evening how that New Testament story about Jesus is so closely patterned on the story that we've been thinking about this evening. And do you also see what it is that the Lord wants to show us as we consider his, his man, his prophet Elisha in Second Kings chapter 4? Yes, Elisha was great. Yes, he received a double portion of God's spirit. But Elisha, the man of God, the prophet of God, was, was meant to point forward for us to a greater prophet of God, one who didn't need to send a staff and a servant, one who didn't even need to stretch himself out. All he needed to do was to speak the word, get up. And that young man got up to new life. Jesus 
is the greater prophet that Elisha points us towards in our text this evening. He is the prophet who speaks a true word of God. You can trust his word and his promises. Whatever Jesus says to you, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, you can trust that word because it's true, because he is God's capital P prophet. We also know that Jesus is the prophet who truly works resurrection power far beyond anything that our story shows us this evening in Second Kings chapter 4. Jesus is the one who doesn't just raise that child to life for a few more years only to die again and be buried in a grave. Jesus is the one who gives new life to men and to women and to children who confess their sin to him and turn to him by faith and with repentance and cry out to him to be brought from death to life. And so this evening, I want us now to move from the room there on the page in Second Kings chapter 4 to a series of rooms, rooms that we find ourselves in our own lives. Maybe you came into this room this evening spiritually dead, as an enemy of God, because you you have not been reconciled to God. You have not tasted of the rivers, the fountain of new life that he can offer and he alone can offer to sinners. Well, in this room this evening, you have the opportunity, if that's you, for this to become a room of new life for you by turning from your sin, by confessing your sin, and clinging to the prophet of God who has himself born the curse for you, and risen to new life, Jesus Christ. Could this room, could this room this evening be a room of new life for some of you here this evening? I pray that it might be so. But all of us are going to go out of this room, and we're going to go home to different rooms. And maybe those are rooms that have a kind of emotional atmosphere for you. And maybe that's not always a nice Atmosphere. Maybe you're going home to a room, a room of sorrow, a room of grief, a room of loneliness. Well, if that's the case for you, I want you to know as well that the prophet of God, the greater than Elisha, can meet you there in that room as well and can bring his resurrection power into your life in that room, in your flat, in your house. This evening and through the week. And maybe that's a room for some of you where you are struggling to put to death your sin. You're struggling to grow in holiness. And you go to that room and you fall back into the same sin again and again and again. If that's you, would you, would you instead, as you go home to that room this evening, cry out to the Lord that he would meet you there, that the Lord Jesus Christ would meet you there to bring his resurrection power that can put to death your sin this week in that room. Maybe you are going to go back to work tomorrow and in that workplace room encounter friends, colleagues who are still living but not living. They're going through the motions of life but spiritually they are dead. And they need desperately to be made alive by Christ Jesus. Well, can I encourage you this evening that that room at that workplace for you could even be an encounter, a place of conversation 
where resurrection power to new life intrudes because the same prophet of God, the Lord Jesus, goes with you by his spirit into that workplace. And he's the one who empowers our evangelism. It's not about how well we speak or how courageous we are. It's about putting out there faithfully the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and watching what he might do to bring dead sinners to new life. So whatever the room is that you're going into this coming week, would you remember this story that takes from a room of promise through a dark dark room of death and finally to a room of life by the resurrection power of the prophet of God? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this beautiful story. We thank you for your promises. And we cast ourselves down before you this evening, knowing our sinfulness, knowing our need, and crying out that you would help us by that same resurrection power worked on our behalf through that greater prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would bring dead sinners to new life even this week, even this evening. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.